live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Historically, the Academy has done a poor job of providing a pipeline of trained administrators to carry out the business of educating people. Most academics serve as department chairs and school deans, which is the pipeline to becoming a college provost and then president out of obligation instead of as a natural career trajectory that comes with training and preparation. My guest today is Earl Lewis. He is the Thomas C. Holt Distinguished Professor of History, African-American Studies, and Public Policy. He's also the director of the Center for Social Solutions at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. We talk about his academic journey, including his time as a faculty member and his transition into administration. Errol Lewis is a former provost at Emory University and the former president of the Mellon Foundation. What's the oldest thing you know about either side of your family history? Up until about five years ago, what I knew about my family history is what my maternal grandmother used to tell me about her father, that he had been born into slavery, earned his freedom, moved from North Carolina to Norfolk County, Virginia into the 1870s, 1880s. She was the youngest of about 17, 18 uh, kids. Her father had mastered reading and writing and some other skills and became a local justice of the peace in Virginia. I was born in Norfolk and my family is from that area. My father's parents migrated in from the eastern shore of Virginia in the early part of the 20th century. My paternal grandmother and grandfather died before I was born. My grandmother in 45 and my grandfather in 54. I was born in 55. Where did you go to school? I had the experience of going to segregated schools in the South until I was in the ninth grade. Then in the 10th grade, schools desegregated. I was part of the transitional generation who had gone mostly to segregated schools, then to uh, desegregated schools. I use that phrase rather than integrated because power was not equal, so it was not integrated in my view. It was desegregated. In elementary school, my teachers had always encouraged us to augment what we were reading in the class textbooks by going out and reading other things, particularly Black newspapers. I was in elementary school when I started reading the Norfolk Journal and Guide and the Baltimore African American and some other Black newspapers. Every Friday, my grandfather would bring home a new ebony and a jet. I would add that uh, to my reading list. And then every so many weeks, our teachers would give us assignments of putting Black characters into the storylines of the things that we had been reading about in class and as part of the curriculum. Now, the white administrators had no idea that these Black teachers were supplementing the standardized curriculum with their own sense of Black history and its purpose. This was the early 1960s and to the mid-1960s, and so they did. So I think of my sort of journey into American history is early on, inspired by teachers who encouraged us to go out and look uh, for evidence that challenged, augmented what we were learning uh, in class. That continued for me when I went to college. Although when I went to college, if you read my high school yearbook, it will say that I intend to major in psychology and accounting. My first year in college, I went 
trying to get into an accounting class and was oversubscribed. I couldn't get in. So I took an African history course instead. And I never did take an accounting class. Not being able to get into that accounting class changed my life forever. Hmm. Where did you go to school as an undergrad? I ended up going to a little uh, school called Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. It's right on the Minnesota-North Dakota border. You fly in to Fargo, North Dakota. I was there from 74 to 78. I have spent the last almost 50 years trying to answer why of all the options that I had. Part of it had to do with my experience going from segregation to desegregation. I knew I wasn't brave enough to go to UVA. I had already endured for three years. My parents, uh, of course, had gone to HBCUs. And so that was one option. And then out of the blue, this little place in Minnesota offered me money and a place that was not like any other place I had been before. And so I say, I'm going to take a chance and go experience a different kind of place than what I had experienced up until then. At that point, they had more Black students on campus than in any time in its history. In the 70s, there were over 100 of us at one point. All of us graduated. They've never been able to attain that kind of number in the intervening three, four decades. We came from all over, from L.A., Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Many of us showed up. And that generation, we still connect with one another. You mentioned that life changed when you took that African history course. And yeah. I'm sitting there going, okay, he finds his place in the middle of Podunk. And, yeah. and they had a professor teaching African history. Dave Sangren White was teaching and taught until he retired African history. He had been on the faculty for a number of years, but he hadn't finished dissertation at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. David was writing a dissertation on the mama and religion. And so I took this course from him and I took every course he taught on African history when I was there and ended up taking courses in American history. I double majored in psychology and history. Uh, And I got to do research both in history and psychology. I was hired as a research assistant in the psychology department uh, on a project that was subsequently published on teaching pre-hypertensive young men how to control uh, their uh, blood pressure using biofeedback techniques. This is the 1970s and we ended up being published in Psychological Bulletin. I came to understand uh, that research was not just research for yourself, but that research actually could be for a broader audience. And then my senior year on the history side, uh, I took a capstone course in that had me do research in African-American history. I I think I titled it Different Pioneers, the story of African-Americans in and along the Red River Valley in Minnesota and North Dakota at the end of the 19th century through the early 20th century. There were African-Americans who had migrated to Western Minnesota in the 1880s, some of whom had come with the military, as would be true a century later, others not. I mean, Black Bobbers in Fargo, and there were a number uh, saloon keepers and others. And so I was able to trace this entrepreneurial presence in what seemed like an outpost for mm-hmm. America. There are questions out here to be explored and materials that have been talking to us, but we haven't asked the right questions of them. And that's when I decided, I think I may actually try to go to graduate school in history rather than psychology. My senior thesis ended up getting published in what was called the Red River Valley Historian. It was a 
the local journal for that region. That was the first uh, publication I had in 1978, my senior thesis. And so I got into graduate school. What sources did you use to do that Cedar Capstone paper? So I used census data. I used newspapers, the Fogel Forum, and went back and read years of microfiche uh, and microfilm. I interviewed one Black woman who had moved to an area in the 1930s who was living in a nursing home by the time I, I encountered her. There weren't me memoirs that I could find. There were no papers and diaries that I could find, but there were public records. And I used the public records augmented by oral history. Is it I was doing work on, on the, what was first my dissertation and then in, in their own interest, my first book. And I kept looking at these Black columns in the newspapers that said, Mr. and Mrs. Jones uh, left Hancock, North Carolina and visited their brother uh, in Norfolk and stayed for 15 days and, 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 and all in these little snippets. There were hundreds of thousands of them. And I kept thinking, there's a story here. I just need to figure out how to tell that story. I ended up taking courses in the stats department as well as a three sequence course in the history department on quantitative methods and statistics. Mm -hmm. I ended up thinking, you know what? I bet I can code this. Uh, and sample over X number of years. And so I sample 840 entrants in the newspaper over mm -hmm. a 10 year period and began to tease out patterns. It was that quantitative sort of experience that allowed me to begin to frame out questions. But it, it's also what I used to say to my students. I said, you know, one thing I, I can teach you a whole lot of things, but I can't teach you historical imagination. So sometimes you have to actually look at a document and ask, how is that document speaking to me? I remember looking at that screen one day and going, there's a story here. No one else has ever used this story. Let me actually figure out what to do. So soon after I wrote my dissertation, got my first job at Berkeley, that was one of the first articles I published was this one that began to tell the story of African-American visitation practices, the gender dynamics and how it's related to migration. I was looking at a story of migration from Pulaski, Tennessee, the home of the Klan, yeah. uh, to Chicago yeah. and following this particular family. And it's that you're saying it's maintaining family. It's maintaining contact. It's sometimes coming to support family when somebody's sick or you're moving on to something else. It's scouting possible places to, to relocate other jobs available all the things that you're, you're alluding to. In a world before there was social media and, and the way you could post and folks had to commit themselves to getting up and going. Uh, mm -hmm. And they did. I, I have challenged the historical community now for the better part of 30, 40 years to say, I would love someone to actually scrub a dozen of these newspapers and, and take these cases and you know challenge my thesis. Maybe if you look at more, you'll see even different patterns or a slightly um, different emphasis. What I was able to do in the late 80s and what can be done now with data science and all are quite different. And even for those of us who aren't data scientists, almost all of our campus, there are data scientists. And more often than not, they're looking for a project. They have the tools, but they don't have the content and the context. Historians have the content and may not always have the tools at hand uh, to do it. And so incredible partnerships could be forged between those who uh, can do one part but don't have the other part available to them. So let's talk about the transition from undergrad to graduate school. 
you went on to University of Minnesota. Why there? At that point, are you saying, I knew I wanted to be a professor? At that point, I didn't know. In fact, I, I lost a Danforth <laughs> scholarship because I wouldn't commit to seeing I wanted to be a professor for the rest of my life. I'm 22 years old. I don't know what I want to do absolutely for the rest of my life. Carol Engelhart was an undergraduate mentor advisor. Russ Menard, who was one and at that point was one of the leading uh, young uh, scholars in colonial America. Russ was at Minnesota and Carol suggested Minnesota. It was Russ who once said to me, Earl, write ahead, put things in a drawer. And even if they aren't complete, and when you're taking on other assignments, you may find that what you've written ahead actually serves you because you can come back to it and finish it and polish it. I've said that to my students over the years, but it was actually Russ Menard who taught me that and that I should always write ahead. And uh, in my roles as a director, dean, provost, foundation president, all of those things, that piece of writing things ahead sometimes and putting them in a drawer uh, comes from uh, this sage advice uh, from my graduate mentor. When I joined as a graduate student, there were no one teaching African-American history, but there was labor history, intellectual history, economic history, social welfare history, and African history. I ended up majoring in, in U.S. history but I did the most substantial minor uh, in African history. After my first year, I thought, you know, I can earn a PhD. And then I had a petition to get into the PhD program, which I did. Gail Plummer gets hired to come and teach African-American history. She gets a leave and, and her courses need to be taught. So she recommended that I teach her courses. I ended up teaching five courses and trying to write my dissertation. I managed to get a job offer from Berkeley, but I hadn't finished my dissertation. And I knew from everyone you, if you can avoid it, you don't want to show up uh, without having finished dissertation. So I accepted the offer at Berkeley and then I deferred coming for a semester so I could finish my dissertation. Then I went to the department and I said, so someone should pay me now to finish writing my dissertation because I'm going to improve your ranking numbers by having a job at Berkeley. I learned to negotiate and I finished. I got a job. I started at Berkeley with the dissertation in hand. And spent four and a half years at Berkeley before I left to come to Michigan. How did you get to Michigan? I was sitting in my office one day and, and Terry McDonald called me out of the blue. He was chairing the search in African-American history and said, Earl, I've read your article in family history and know something about your work. Is there any chance you'd be interested in a job at Michigan? And I go, I don't know. I, mean, I agreed uh, to explore an opportunity at Michigan. Harold Cruz was still here. He had retired at that point. And Tom Holt had left a couple of years before to go to Chicago. I was coming into a place in history that would need to be rebuilt. Barbara Fields technically never classified herself as an African-American historian and more as a Southern historian. But Barbara was also about to leave uh, Michigan and, and go to Columbia. I ended up interviewing uh, for the job uh, at Michigan. And I thought, worst case scenario, I'll just stay at Berkeley. And, and best case scenario, I'll have a choice between Berkeley and Michigan. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I had a choice. And irony, my colleagues at Berkeley in an attempt to keep me, and because of the structure in the University of California step system, 
they were going to give me an administrative role so they could actually pay me more. I thought, I don't want to be an administrator. That's not me. I ended up in Michigan, and within a year, I was directing the Center for Afro-American and African Studies. So you get there, and within a year, you're given administrative position. My arrival at Michigan coincided with the great exodus. Alimis Rui left to go to Binghamton, and several other people would leave as well. And the late Lemuel Johnson, who was a literary scholar, Lem was directing the Center for Afro-American and African Studies, but his cycle was up. And so when I first got there, I agreed to be on the search committee to look for someone, and we couldn't agree. And so then the dean turned to me and said, would you do it on an interim basis for one year? And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll protect my interests. The late James Jackson, a noted social psychologist, James was on the search committee. And so we're talking and then finally James whispered, brother, you may be asked to do this now. And sure enough, I was asked to do it. In that time between saying, no, I don't want to do administration to agreeing to do it on an interim basis, I discovered something about myself and it would change my life forever, which is taking on administrative assignments appealed to one part of myself uh, that was not the scholarly side. So much about academic life as I experienced it then and experience it now is about deferred gratification. You end up writing a piece and it appears in print 12, 14, 16, 18 months later. By the time it comes out, you go, I don't even remember writing that sentence because you've moved on intellectually and emotionally to something else. I discovered about administration actually is I could make a decision in the morning and it had consequences by the afternoon. And for me, that was actually the right balance. I said, the balance between X amount of deferred gratification and Y amount of immediate gratification knowing I was making a difference is that piece that I thought, okay, I can do this. I learned I not only had an aptitude, but I had a certain set of other gifts that go along with putting pieces in motion uh, to get things done. The academy does not seem to train people to be administrator. It seems to take people and say, will you do this? Nobody is volunteering and nobody is being trained. Has that been your experience? The record supports what you have outlined, that most of us are accidental administrator leaders. That is, we get tapped because we've been around long enough, now is your turn. And in the world of obligation, you do your three to five years, and then you go back and do the thing you want, and you think you have the inoculation, so you'll never be asked to do it again. Um, Individual schools and individual clusters of schools, so I'll use the Big Ten, has created academic leadership programs, one form or another, where they began to identify people at the mid-career stage and provide them with some training or exposure to what it means to lead complex organizations. The academy is the only place where young starting folks are told that to aspire to be in charge one day means that you've gone over to the dark side. You start as a young person at IBM, you may, this may be beaten out of you in a few years, but you still you think maybe one day I could be the CEO. You name the corporation or company, there's this notion that perhaps with the right luck and right drive, I can one day be in charge. That's not taught in graduate school. 
<laughs> by and large. Uh, I mean, I've had young people call me out of the blue and says, Dr. Lewis, may I talk to you? Because one day I want to be you. And mm -hmm. I would sit there and I go, okay, so particularly when I was provost, do you know what I do? I mean, do you really want to be me? But I'm happy to sit down and talk to you if that's what you really think. And there are multiple paths to being in this job. But is the reason why Dwight McBride and I actually have started what we call the Academic Leadership Institute that we launched last summer to expose more leaders, particularly leaders of color, to what it would take to assume the highest offices of provost and president, recognizing that we'll need to do back up in some once we get this fully launched and begin to deal with department chairs, unit heads, and deans. We started at the senior level because uh, we thought there was a dearth uh, of men and women who had opportunities to assume the job of president uh, or provost. So we, we launched that last year, and the second cohort will uh, be convened this summer. I think it is amazingly dysfunctional how we do leadership in the academy. I'm glad to hear that there are people out there, there are conferences or consortiums that are doing something because it, it needs to be changed because who wants to work for a dysfunctional boss? Exactly. You know, I, if the coach is dysfunctional and the team's not winning, they get rid of them. Maybe it is if your department is still productive, the students sitting in the, in the seats are relatively happy, we're winning and it's okay. It's not until it really hits the fan that somebody steps in and says, we need to change leadership. You know, so yeah, I think one of the things, particularly in, in a university environment, with all of its constituent elements, presidents have more or less control than one would think. A president actually could disappear. And, and it would still run well because each of the units have a certain level of autonomy. And as long as the dean is doing his or her job reasonably well, then that piece uh, will work. There is a need for someone who's thinking about the entire institution and not just their own individual domain. And it's in that case when universities look like holding companies. And what you have then with athletics is one part of that holding company. The hospital is another part of that holding company. And then each of the schools and colleges is uh, different pieces. And what holds them together is the corporate brand. But how they function day in and day out is a challenge. And as a former provost, I know how real that is because you know, I've had to hire and fire people. Mm -hmm. And they turn to me and said, Earl, I'm doing my job. I said, you're doing part of your job. Mm -hmm. Another part of your job requires you to do A, B, C, or D. And, and that's the challenge of leadership. I ended up directing the Center for Afro-American African Studies from circa 1990 uh, to 1993, first interim, then regular director. I, I took a, a break from what I thought was administrative duties other than doing some, like being director of graduate studies in the history department. By 1997, I had agreed to become the senior associate dean uh, in the graduate school. And Nancy Cantor uh, came back to Michigan from Princeton to be dean of the graduate school of Rackham. And Nancy approached me and asked me, would I be the, her senior associate dean uh, in the graduate school? And Nancy was plucked uh, to be the new provost at Michigan. I went from being senior associate dean to 
interim dean of the graduate school. I ended up then from 1998 until 2004, uh, I was selected to be dean and vice provost. I was in that role. 2004, I would leave Michigan after 15 years to become the provost uh, at Emory University. As a dean of Rackham and as the provost at Emory, I became the first African-American in the whole of those jobs and titles. What I learned at Emory, and I credit Jim Wagner, who was the president, he said to me one day, I like to think of um, myself as serving as rather than as, than as being. And I said, Jim, that's beautiful. Uh, it means that you're free to leave it at any moment. If conditions aren't right, people asking you to do things you don't want to do, boards of any kind want to push in directions you're uncomfortable with, you just say, I'm no longer serving as. I can go serve as something else. And I think too many friends who have assumed leadership roles, as I've observed, forget they serve as. Somewhere along the way, they allow themselves to become. And that complicates the dexterity they need to effectively lead. Take the job under Nancy Cantor. Any training, any preparation. It went from there to Emory. Was it a headhunter? And did you get any training to be provost? The short answer is there was no formal training. I mean, other than it was mostly piecemeal. By the time Nancy had hired uh, me to be her uh, senior associate dean, as I noted, I had already been director of graduate studies uh, in the history department. I had some exposure to a series of things. I had budget training on a job uh, as director of the Center for Afro-American African Studies for four years. No one taught me about how to deal with personnel. I just had to figure it out on my own. By the time I got to be provost, I was approached by an external uh, search consultant. My name was in circulation and the person who called me became a, a close and dear friend. And I, you know, I had all, at that point in my life, I assumed that I would become a provost at Michigan, but for a variety of reasons that didn't uh, materialize. And so I thought, okay, uh, here's an opportunity, but how to do the job of provost. I had observed every provost that I had encountered certainly since I've been at Michigan. Chuck Best, who went on to be president at MIT, I had worked and watched Chuck. Gil uh, Whitaker, who was dean of the business school, became provost after Chuck. And, and Gil had brought me in. A handful of junior faculty got invited uh, to various conversations uh, as they were being clearly groomed for leadership roles. I was one of them. I learned uh, things from each one of them by observing and asking questions. The same thing I did with presidents. So Jim Duderstadt, who was the president of the university when I was hired, I did something that I realized my successors never did. I made it a point every semester, getting on the provost and the president's calendar and going mm -hmm. in to tell them about what we were doing and why what we were doing was important to the university. And years later, 25 years later, I was talking to someone within that role. I said, well, just go talk to the president. I go, I can't do that. I go, who told you you couldn't do that? He said, well, the dean says, I have to go. I said, why do you even tell the dean if you're going to talk to the president? It never crossed my mind to go and get permission from the dean to go talk to the president. I just make an appointment and go and talk. And it benefits the president to actually talk filtered by the deans. And as someone who's been in these roles, I understand how important it is sometimes to have a perspective 
from a faculty member that is not being mediated through the lens of the dean. It's that piece that no one taught me, but I looked and observed and thought, you know, I'm going to knock on that door uh, and see if I can uh, get the audience I need. You can't talk about diversity and its importance without uh, meeting with the chair of Afro-American African Studies. And I just made it a point of showing up every semester for a meeting. They came to know me as a result as well. And I got considered and positioned for other things later on as a result. The show will be right back. For related content, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. My wife, Dr. Tina Opie, worked as a management consultant before earning her Ph.D. at NYU Stern School of Business and becoming a tenured faculty member at Babson College. She has worked with UBS, American Express, and Hulu to help their organizations do the hard work of becoming more inclusive. Tina Opie's consulting group can help your organization develop a strategy for elevating women and people from different racial ethnic backgrounds to leadership positions. Tina's work on inclusion, appearance policies, authenticity, and or shared sisterhood will make a positive difference in your organization. Contact Tina at Opie Consulting Group, LLC, at gmail.com. That's Opie Consulting Group, LLC, at gmail.com. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. So, so while you're provost at Emory, you knew all these other provosts. Did you regularly reach out to him the same way a head football coach who just becomes a head coach reaches out to the former head coaches he played for when he didn't know what to do? Billy Fry had left Michigan and had gone back to Emory, where he would be the first provost at Emory. I used to meet with Billy at least once or twice a year when I first got to Emory, just to pick his brain. Since he was an undergrad, he was an alum of Emory, had gone to Michigan, had seen other things, and had come back. Then there were a group of provosts of the AAU, the major research universities, and we met every year. We still get together and talk and confer and compare notes. There were only two African-American AAU provosts, Bernadette Gray-Little at Chapel Hill and I were the only two at that point. They passed over her to be chancellor and hired one of her deans. And she went off to be chancellor at, at KU, at, at Kansas. The role and place of these search consultants, they are a complicated mix in the world of diversifying higher education leadership. Some, I think, well of, uh, and others, I always thought that they had my name on the list so that they could say, they had a diverse pool. And I actually called them on it no, more than once. And I probably, I didn't earn any friends. I can't even begin to count the number of times uh, people reached out to me about a presidency here or there. Some of them were legit and some I turned down because <laughs> the financial challenges were so great. Another place, I was one of two final candidates. And I remember in the interview, I said, are you prepared to make history? He said, what do you mean? If you appoint me, it will be a historic appointment. I'm going to need all the backing of the institution to be effective in this job. So are you prepared to make history? They were, but not with me. And he selected another candidate. Race in America is there. And I can walk into a room and I can tell when and how and where people are looking at me and 
the racial assumptions. I came in probably second for four or five presidencies. And to this day, I was so surprised because I left the room in the search consultant, the deputy to the president, both said to me, we're going to be calling you this weekend with the offer. I knew the, the head of the system is someone that I was professional colleagues with and close. And when he called without, and not the offer, I said, so, okay, what the hell happened? And he says, the board fell in love with someone else's origin story. I go, okay, I can't change my origin story. It sounds to me the same thing going on with NFL head coaches. Higher ed has gotten better. I think if anything, I kicked the door open a little bit, and now people are able to put a do- foot in the door, and hopefully we can keep this door open. There's a whole group of folks uh, who are in the, who are already out, and then there's a whole generation in the pipeline, uh, Rice and LSU and you sort of begin to look at the institutions where African-Americans have ascended uh, to leadership roles. Uh, and I, I'm happy and thrilled to see this. Just before I took the Mellon offer, I was actually in the throes of this being offered a position in the presidency of a major research university. I was the lead candidate. I was on the board at Mellon and uh, we were searching for a new uh, president. I thought my path was to be president of a major research university. And I was on that path. Monday, I was expected to be made to offer president of this research university. This is a Thursday. And I get to the board meeting and they asked me to leave the room. After a while, the chair and the vice chair come and knock on the door and said, Earl, will you come back in? Based on the recommendation of the search committee and our own assessment, we'd like to see whether or not you would consider being president of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. That was not what I was considering. So I called my wife and one of my oldest and dearest friends, Rita Rushing, who used to head human resources at Coca-Cola and then Equifax, one of the senior most African-American women in human resources in the country. We've grown up together. I said, Rita, let me tell you what just happened in the last, as, as only close and old dear friends, she says, okay, let me just get this right. You get to spend the next five years giving away money or begging for money. It seems like there's not a real choice here. <laughs> okay. Wow. She <laughs> framed that well. Yeah. I, I turned down that opportunity to be president of this research university and <clears throat> went on uh, to be uh, president of the Mellon Foundation for five years. During my five years, we gave away 1.2 billion dollars and we increased by billion dollars. Your decision to come back to Michigan. It was a a point of inflection on the board that had hired me was a different board. We looked at our shared futures. I thought, you know what, this may be the right time to go do something else. In creating this center from scratch, I mean, it's my vision and it's driven by my energy uh, and the energy of everyone else who works with and for me. I, I thought if this is my legacy for the last 10 years and I'm on payroll, this may be the opportunity uh, to actually do something substantial mm-hmm. and significant. And the center that I direct is called the Center for Social Solutions at the University of Michigan. And part of this academic leadership institute falls under one of our big rubrics, which is diversity and democracy. I am thrilled uh, by what we've been able to scratch together in a three-year period and 
hoping by the time I step away from this, it will be endowed. If not, we just shutter the doors and close, and I will consider it a success. We're going to take a commercial break. This is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. The success I've experienced on and off the field, in relationships and professionally, are a result of what I call my Super 7. Seven principles that I developed over time that if you apply them, they will make a positive difference in your life. Purchase a copy of the book today. We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Be a difference maker right now. Purchase two or more paperback copies, give them away, and make a positive impact on someone's life. The book is available in digital form as an ebook and audiobook. We're back. Let's end with the initiative that you've created to help people be prepared for leadership in the academy. Are there three things you need to know? We believe that a healthy society is predicated on tapping into the diverse set of talent uh, that's uh, available. Talent is uh, evenly distributed across the world and across communities. Access to opportunity is not. And so what those of us in leadership roles should think about is how do we bridge the divide between the dispersal of talent and the access to opportunity? Uh, How do you put together an excellent team based on writings of Scott Page, among others, the more complex the problem, uh, the greater return you get if you have a diverse and excellent team. If everybody's from Harvard and Yale, and that by definition doesn't make it diverse and excellent. It's critical to actually assembling that team that is diverse and excellent. The second, think through what problems you're trying to solve. What opportunity are you trying to pursue? I used to say to my leadership team when I was provost and when I was at Mellon, what are the opportunities you're going to work on? What are the issues you're going to try to confront? I want your opportunities list to be twice as long as your issues list. Because if you only bring in me issues and that you're going to deal with over the course of the year, that means you're not advancing the institution. I want you to spend more time pursuing your opportunities than confronting your issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so many people in leadership roles get bogged down in the issues. That discipline of mm-hmm. making sure you have at least twice as many opportunities as issues that you have on your list on an annual basis uh, means uh, that you're always pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, don't be afraid to say, I don't know, and seek out other people uh, who have experience and who may have a perspective. And it may not always be people in leadership roles. When I was provost at Emory, I knew (laughs) I had to find spaces and places where I could hear things that I wouldn't hear uh, elsewhere. So I purposely went and started playing pickup basketball with the guys from Plant and elsewhere because I could learn things about the institution and talking to them between games before they even knew who I was go over to the library and talk to the security guard who was just sitting and asking what he was seeing because there's leadership scattered across an organization. And, and this notion that only people who are in the C-suite are the leaders is one of the greatest fallacies of any complex organization. There are leaders elsewhere, particularly if you empower all of those people to be leaders. If you happen to be sitting in the C-suite, then how do you empower everyone else in your organization and be leaders by going out and solicit 
both formally through structured surveys, but informally through chance encounters where you're just asking people, tell me what's going on. What do I need to know that I wouldn't know otherwise? Some of the initiatives that we launched at Emory is a result of conversations I had on the basketball court that people didn't even know what jump-started it. But it was just what the guys would tell me, things they had observed. And I understood, too, it came with a price. Some of those guys who got close to me on the basketball court ended up losing their jobs when leadership changed because they had gotten too close to me and I couldn't prevent it. Robin Kelly, who had been on the Emory faculty before, he came to Michigan said, Earl, you headed back to the plantation. There is that general perception in, in among the Black community in Atlanta about what that means. And, and I could see it under my watch. We structured a zip code analysis. I want to see how many people who work in uh, these different fields live in the same zip code. Because there you can begin to do a network analysis and to figure out how many brothers are getting brothers and cousins and neighbors jobs and excluding other folks. And that tells us something about what our HR policy says on the front door, but what is actually happening in those middle to last doors. My suspicions were confirmed and that led to some additional policy changes. But by that time I was walking out the door as provost. It's those three components and you can begin to think through, I would say to anyone thinking about a leadership role on the last point, bear in mind that you only get to be in these roles for a certain period of time. You try to make as much difference as you can uh, during that time, knowing that your successor can undo anything you've done. Uh, and I've witnessed that more than once. Can people find out more about the Institute and the work you do? If you go to our, our website uh, for the Center for Social Solutions at the University of Michigan, you'll see all the work we do. We have four projects on diversity and democracy, historical slavery, and contemporary expressions of enslavement, water quality and technologies, and the future of work. Uh, those are the four domains. Under diversity and democracy, we publish a, a book series with Princeton University Press, Our, uh, Our Compelling Interest. We also have the Academic Leadership Institute for um, those aspiring to senior roles in uh, the academy. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for sharing your career, your journey. Thank you uh, for the invitation. I'd love to come back. And, and, and as we talk about leadership, one of the, our last uh, newer projects, funded in part from the Mellon Foundation, is on reparations. We're leading a, a national conversation with nine colleges and universities across the country, uh, looking at how local communities can begin to write their own histories with an eye on what that means for reparations. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show, 
If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 